My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on Twail. Twail, or Third World Approaches to International Law, is a critical theory of international law. Its scholars are particularly concerned with the divisions that were created between the first and the third world during the period of conquest, circa 16th century, and the role that international law has played in preserving those divisions and often in exacerbating them as well. In the following talk, I problematize Twale's character. Is it a theory of international law, as I suggested earlier and as many of us have argued, or is it something else? an intellectual community, a scholarly movement, an approach, or even, as was suggested at the latest Twail conference by Professor Anthony Angie, a spirit. Um, Good one? All right, so um, let's start again then. Uh, So let me tell you a little bit then about the motivation behind uh, this article. Uh, So it's part of a bigger book project, but for now it's just an article that will eventually be a chapter. So part of the motivation actually has to do with my postgraduate supervision. And all of you who have supervised students before know that our students have to present to us what their theory is, what their method is, their research question, and so on. And so I often have students who come up to me and say, okay, great, I want to work with Twail. Now, do I have my theory or is my method covered? And they're not sure what the answer is, and they're not sure what the answer is because the scholarship isn't clear as to what the answer happens to be. And so. In thinking about it, are they working with a theory or are they working with a method? I thought it could be interesting to explore that in the context of the scholarship itself. So I dug around a little bit and then you have the work of Karen Mickelson, professor at the University of British Columbia, who um, has for a long time been writing about Twail. And in one of the articles she mentions that we in fact do almost a disservice to our students by not being clear in that many of them are having, experiencing challenges, obstacles when it comes to grant applications as they're required to be clear as to both the method and the theory and yet again the scholarship isn't clear so as a result then their applications are deemed almost subpar. So it was interesting that she said that because in her own work she then refers to Twail as a movement a scholarly movement, an intellectual community. And then at the last Twail conference, which took place at NUS, National University of Singapore in July, she echoed Anthony Angi and referred to a Twail spirit. So whether it's theory or method doesn't come through in Karen's work either. So there's another scholar, Obiora Okafor at Osgood, and he writes an article specifically about that. And I think the title is Theory, Method, or Something Else. And his conclusion is that Twail is a theory, it is a methodology, it is an approach, it is also a school of thought, it is an intellectual community, and it is a movement. So really, it's just about anything you want it to be. So on one hand, it had to do with that. Let me clarify what Twail is, at least on, for purposes of my postgraduate supervision. But then on the other hand, part of the motivation had to do with my own ambivalence. And I thought about how do I deploy Twail in my own research. And I thought, well, I use it as an instrument. I use it as a platform to critique prejudice in international law, prejudice from or against the third world. So I thought, okay, that's fine from an analytical perspective. But then I also introduced this Twail approach in my teaching, and I tend to teach with that Twail hat on. 
And then I use it in terms of my supervision as well, and many of my students, a couple of my PhDs who are in the room, can appreciate that, that I always come at international law with that critical lens, that critical disposition, that critical approach, as Twailers might say. So, okay, fine. But then I said there's that ambivalence. So on one hand, I'm using it as that analytical tool, that platform, but then I also use Twail as the basis for a call, a call for reform, and saying that international law could be better than it is. And anyone who has read any type of Twail scholarship will know that you'll have critique, 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 concluded by, well, let's do something different. So you always have that, and I notice that I have that in my own scholarship. And that's where the article begins. The article begins with what seems to be a contradiction in the nature of Twail. So on one hand, we have Twail as an analytical framework. And we start off with um, the etiology, then, of international law. And we look at the role that conquest has played in shaping the international legal framework. So we say conquest, Christopher Columbus, Francisco de Vitoria, and such. And conquest was key then to the shaping of international law. And as a result, we have this form of European subjectivity presenting itself as a type of universal objectivity. That is there, so there is a prejudicial history. And much of Twail scholarship deals with that. But then you also have the Twail scholarship that goes a little bit further and that says, let's look at international law today, not just historically, but today. And today what we see then are that the colonial or the, the conquest, those origins that are laden in conquest, followed through with the imperial period and the colonial period. And as a result, we have these legacies, these Eurocentric legacies in the operation of international law today. So if Twail ended there, I think it would be just fine. It would be a theory about law, a critical theory about law. It is external, it is detached, it's concerned with stratification globally, and it's looking at that stratification through the lens of Europe and the rest. And it's tying it to imperialism and to colonialism and their disputes around that, but that's what it is. That's what, in essence, it is. And it's trying to underscore what would be then the prejudiced nature of international law and the prejudicial character of the operation of international law. So pointing then to inherent bias within the framework. But again, that's only one angle of the, of the scholarship, and this is where the contradiction emerges. On the other hand, what we have is the aspirational quality. And it's interesting to hear the language that is deployed by the scholars. They say that what we need then is to create a truly universal international law. We need to construct, Anthony Angi says this, a compelling vision of justice and translate that into the international legal framework. Now, unfortunately, there's little more for me to say about that as there isn't much of an elaboration on what that means in the scholarship itself. But there is where there is this contradiction and that is the next stage in the article that I attempt then to reconcile or I ask, is it possible to reconcile it? We have on one hand the descriptive analytic and on the other hand we have this normative activist or activist normative approach. So I turn to Hilary Charlesworth. Hilary Charlesworth, not a Twail scholar. She's looking then, she crafts a very strong, a very robust, a rigorous feminist critique of international law. And she says, and there's a phrase that stuck with me, we have to be careful about not succumbing to our own prejudice. Well, it's a type of confirmation bias, weariness there. And we say, okay, that is great. She doesn't exactly elaborate on the how other than being constantly vigilant in terms of how we're going about the critique. So I say, okay, Hilary Charlesworth doesn't quite help me reconcile it, right? The vigilance is important, but it doesn't get me there. 
So then I turn to another scholar, name of China Mieville. Some of you might be familiar with. China Mieville says that ultimately there is a type of intrinsic incongruity in the nature of international law. And for anyone who's yet read Mayville, you know he goes the whole hog. And what he says is that law is violence. International law is predation. And it kind of ends there, and now he writes fantasy. Well, he does write fantasy. <laughs> Very good fantasy. But I'm not trying to, I'm not being facetious, but for the most part, his critique somewhat leaves us with saying, all right, we're in, back to, in fact, ultimately left to abandon the whole enterprise. And I didn't quite like that conclusion either. So I turned to another scholar, another scholar by the name of John Reynolds, a scholar over at Maynooth. And John Reynolds, in one article related to Twale, he speaks about guerrilla intellectuals. So it's an article about intellectuals, and he crafts this idea of guerrilla intellectuals. And what he says is that there's a high level of incongruity between Twale and mainstream international law. He stands by that. He says, yes, there is this incongruity. But what Twale is ultimately rejecting is or are the normative ideals that mainstream international law assigns to itself. It says we're rejecting those normative ideals. And what are some of the normative ideals that he examines in this article? On one hand, the notion of balance. One has to take a balanced approach towards international disputes. He rejects the idea, or Twale, he says, rejects the idea of civility, the idea that we have to be civil when we engage in these discussions in that he says the violence that is perpetrated against the third world is hardly civil, so there's no reason for us to respond in that way. And then interestingly, he also ultimately rejects objectivity, making a similar argument to the one I made before, saying that the objectivity, the universality that is presented to us is merely European subjectivity. So I'm rejecting ultimately these Eurocentric ideals. Now, we could go a little bit further and say that even these notions of balance or civility or objectivity are historically contingent. And so if they're historically contingent, then what we are effectively saying is that even claims to being balanced or claims to being objective are themselves suffused with this Eurocentric approach towards international legal deliberation. So, I transpose then Reynolds's argument to my examination of Twale as theory. And the conclusion that I reach is that Twale, in fact, rejects the role that is assigned to theory by international legal theorists. Twale says that the role of theory is not merely to explain how the law operates. The role of theory can be, in fact, to subvert. So Twale, I say, is ultimately a guerrilla theory. So it's not a theory of law, and I don't think anyone ever makes the claim that Twale is a theory of law, but it's not just a theory about law, rather it's a theory against law, or at least against the very narrow parameters within which this concept of legality is permitted to blossom in international legal theory. Now I started to wonder, does this lead me back to Mieville then? Am I rejecting everything? And I, answer, I think the answer is no, I am not. What I am arguing is that Twale's aim is to disrupt the status quo. It's not saying abandon the whole affair, abandon the operation. Rather, it's saying the operation as, or the game as it's being played today, is being played on unfair terms. And we need to change the game, change the rules, change the values that underpin it, if we are to achieve something different. So here's where I reach the conclusion, and I say, is Twale then revolutionary?
And my answer is not so much. And it turns out then, and some of you will have read Costas Duzinas and his book with, he co-wrote with Geerty, Adam Geerty, I believe, which he co-wrote. And he speaks then to historic jurisprudence, restricted jurisprudence, and general jurisprudence. And he says, historically, jurisprudence was intended as a type of wisdom, a type of conscious of the law. It was the means by which we were going to measure state law, we were going to measure state behavior against. And so the analytic and the normative end up being, in fact, very natural bedfellows. They work quite well together. So it's not just as the law as it is, or the law as it was, or the law as it could be, but also the law as it should be. So mainstream theory then appears to be the problem and not twill itself. It's not that twill doesn't fit the category of theory as international law is presenting it. It's rather that the way mainstream international law is presenting theory is deficient. It is partial. It is restrictive. And because mainstream international law is operating with this bastardized version of theory, then in the end, Twail itself proves to be incongruous simply because Twail is calling for something bigger, something greater, something wider, something more comprehensive. So Twail then, if I were to use the language of Duzinas, hearkens to this type of general jurisprudence that ultimately expands the possibilities for international law. And that is the argument that I develop in the article. And I'll conclude then with the final paragraph. And so if I may just read this to you. Twail scholars have developed a compelling critical apparatus, one that borrows and rejects analytical methods, that celebrates and condemns normative pursuits, and that submits to and subverts tenets of international law. Is it a theory? Yes. But a theory that challenges what legal theory is meant to be. Those who look to twail for deliverance, and equally those who look to twail for disappointment, are committing acts of self-harm. There is enough in twail to defend and to forsake international law. Like the, legal, the international legal regime it critiques, I am forced to conclude that, at this stage, Twale has little more than paradoxes to offer. But oh, what succulent paradoxes they are. <laughs> Leave it there. Thank you. Mostan, thank you so much. It's been a really rich conversation, and I'm glad we got the discussion going. Sure, yeah, really well. So thank you all for coming. Great. Great. See you next Thanks, everyone.